I think what we are always trying to do at our museum is present people with beautiful and interesting objects that help them realize that quilts are really complex and interesting forms of material culture that tell stories you might never imagine they can tell. You're listening to Seamside, where we explore the inner work of textiles. I'm your host, Zach Foster, and today we sit down with quilt curator Marin Hansen. Now, before we jump into this conversation with Marin, just a quick word of thanks to the good folks over at the Quilty Nook. Y'all know who you are, and you know how much I appreciate you. Thank you for being here and for making the Nook such a special place to be. Y'all may have seen on Instagram before how much I love a good tiny quilt. That's why I wanted to sit down and put a little polish on a new video tutorial called How to Make a Tiny Quilt. If you're interested in learning more about hand sewing, some of my favorite stitches, fundamentals like the back stitch, the running stitch, and how to put it all together, I would encourage you to download this new tutorial for free. I'll link in the show notes below. It'll be just you and me for 30 minutes hanging out and sewing. I can't think of anything better. A few weeks ago, I caught up with quilt researcher and author Yannick and Smucker to thumb through her new book together. If you haven't heard our conversation yet on a new deal for quilts, I recommend you go back, catch that episode first, and then come join me for this conversation. Because today we're going behind the scenes, behind the book, and into the International Quilt Museum itself. I'm joined by the curator of international collections at IQM, Marin Hansen, to hear what it was like to put on the exhibition part of a new deal for quilts. I know very little about how curators can pull off such a quilt defeat, so I had all kinds of questions. In this conversation, Marin and I discuss a curator's calculus for choosing the perfect collection of quilts, the significance of feed sacks and quilt making, and the impact of quilts on the human experience. I hope you enjoy How to Put on a Show with quilt curator Marin Hansen. Marin, thank you so much for joining me here this morning. It's a pleasure to be here, Zach. Just last week, I talked with Yannick and Smucker about a new deal for quilts. And so I'm so excited to hear your side of the story as the curator for this exhibit, for this show, working with the International Quilt Museum. But first, can you paint the picture for our audience? Where are you at right now? Yeah. So I am the curator of international collections for the International Quilt Museum. I've been a curator there for over 20 years, but for the last 10 years, I have worked remotely for the Quilt Museum. So I actually live, yeah, seven hours away from the Quilt Museum. But as a curator, most of what I do on a day-to-day basis, I can do yeah, from afar. So lots of research and writing and communicating with guest curators like Yannickin, communicating with dealers and collectors, all of which obviously can be done remotely these days. So obviously when the pandemic hit and everybody started working remotely, I was well equipped <laughs> for those couple of years and now continuing on. So that's that's where I am in Northeast Iowa, a little town called Decorah. I love it. You were doing remote before remote was cool. That's right. Marn, I can't help but notice that beautiful piece of patchwork behind you. I see soft reds and mustardy colors. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Yeah, absolutely. 
this is a quilt made um, by a quilt maker in Kathmandu, Nepal. Uh, there's a really great organization and NGO, excuse me, um, called Quilts for Kids Nepal, and they help uh, women in Kathmandu uh, find a market for the quilts they've made so that they can send their kids to school. And they're largely made by refugees, Rajasthani economic refugees who now live in Nepal. So this is a piece that I guess we would call sort of a flying geese pattern, but it's using lots of different, probably reused fabrics, maybe from saris or other, you know, garments. And yeah, I just, these are the kinds of quilts I like, the ones that are a little bit quirky, show, show a real personality in them. So what's your sense about the design? I mean, you said, you know, here in the States, we'd call them flying geese. Is that a traditional Nepalese design or has it been influenced uh, by cultural diffusion yeah. and all the other? Well, you do see it a lot in Indian quilts. And so these women from Rajasthan would have had quilts around them all their lives. India is, I, I would say India is the country probably with the richest quilt history. You go from village to village and there's a different style of quilt, you know, like in Rajasthan, the quilts there would look completely different from the quilts from Bengal, the Bengal region uh, and from the south of India. So this sort of simple patchwork pattern of triangles repeating, certainly these women would have seen all their lives in other quilts. But I think an interesting thing about so many quilt patterns is that there isn't necessarily a direct relationship around the world. You know, you can't say that the flying geese pattern was transferred from one place to the other, but there are so many patterns that are just sort of human. Humans have been drawn to them, you know, for millennia. So I, I would say that, yeah, this is a pattern that they would have seen all their lives, but it's also, you know, it's a simple one. It's a way to uh, reuse lots of fabrics and everyone's drawn to that, I think. Well, it's beautiful. And I'll be sure to put a link to Quilts for Kids Nepal in the show notes in case folks would like to check that out right. for themselves. So when we heard from Yannick and we heard about what a labor of love it was to pull the book together. And I'm curious to know from your end of things as a curator, how do you begin to plan a show like this? Yeah, well, as a curator, you're always having to think several years out. Um, you know, when we plan our museum schedule, we're always looking three, four, five, ideally, years out. And each curator has several exhibitions that they're responsible for, whether they are doing the deep curation themselves or whether it's like with Yannick and she was a guest curator and I was her liaison. So, she, you know, she did the heavy lifting, really. And I, I kind of helped her, you know, identify pieces in the collection and maybe narrow down some ideas or clarify some things. And because we're working on multiple projects at the same time, we're sort of having to schedule things out and allocate our time in an appropriate or efficient way. So you, you know, in this case, we got started when Yannickin contacted me. Yannickin and I, we've known each other for about two decades now. And so when she came to me, sort of in the midst of the pandemic, right after sort of everyone was behind closed doors, she said, hey, you know, I've been working on this, this project. I have been seeing and identifying these depression era photographs, largely 
government-sponsored photographs that contain images of quilts. And, you know, I have this project that I would love to bring to fruition, and I'm wondering if the International Quilt Museum would like to partner. And I said, well, obviously, yes, because we've worked with her on several projects previously, all of which were highly successful. And so immediately I just said, absolutely, let's move forward with this. Your research warrants a publication. So let's, you know, let's keep that in the forefront all along. We want to make sure that something comes out of this in print. Yeah. So that's how that's how it began. That was the sort of the kernel. And then over those couple of years, you know, we had to do things like, yes, identify quilts from the collection that suited the topics she was bringing up. Um, Sometimes there are pieces in our collection that work. And then other times she thought that we needed to borrow. So that was another aspect, too, was identifying pieces in other collections that we could borrow from. And so identifying sort of key pieces is a really great place to start, especially because she had so much research already conducted and she had so many of these images already identified. So at that point, those ideas she had and those images she had really helped us shape how things moved forward and how how we would identify quilts in our collection to best illustrate those ideas. How many quilts came from the International Quilt Museum's collection versus were borrowed? Oh, I should know those. I'm terrible with or like rough numbers. numbers, but we borrowed, I think it was three pieces and the remainder of uh, about a, 10 other pieces were from our collection. No, actually it was four pieces we borrowed. So several of them were from Michigan State University, who has a fantastic quilt collection. And then a, a final one was uh, from a private collector. It was actually uh, her grandmother who made the quilt. So it was really great to be able to share that piece with, you know, our visitors and then in the in the publication as well. And what's it like when you reach out to, let's say, Michigan here in this case and say, hey, can we borrow this quilt for a show? Is it really just like you send them an email and they pack up the quilt and send it yeah, to you? Is that I mean, easy? That's pretty much it. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's helpful when you already have a good working relationship with the other museum. And we have worked with Michigan State on several different projects. And, you know, we know the curators there. And so that makes it a little bit easier. It, it sort of smooths the process out. But yeah, essentially, museum to museum loans are pretty formalized. Everybody knows how they work. There are standard loan forms. There are shipping procedures, those kinds of things that you have to ensure. But yeah, it's it's not, especially when you're working with a museum that you have a relationship with, it's not too hairy or <laughs> complicated. Yeah. Good to know. So how many, roughly, how many quilts does the IQM have in their collection? Do you know off the top yeah, of your head? Yeah, so <laughs> that number is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. It's hard to give anything precise, but, you know, we're well over 800, excuse me, 8,000 quilts in our collection at this point, plus a variety of other related objects. So our collection's focus really is primarily on quilted textiles. But as you know, there are so many affiliated textiles and objects and, you know, just various forms of material culture that complement the quilt portion of our collection. In addition, as a the curator of international collections, I'm constantly looking at traditions around the world that are related to what 
we here in the U.S. think of as a quilt, which generally is a bed cover. But in so many other parts of the world, that's not how quilting and patchwork and applique are, you know, present. They are maybe clothing or wall hangings, uh, decorative objects, spiritual, like amuletic objects. So that's a complicated way of saying we have thousands of quilts and related items in our collection. <laughs> well, Maren, I might have to invite you back to talk about all the non-related items because that sounds like a whole conversation in and of itself. I would love to. Anytime. Thank you. So out of these 8,000 some quilts that you have, what was your calculus for narrowing it down to the almost 15 quilts that you have in the New Deal show? As a curator, what was your kind of what were your main points that you were thinking about when you're making these decisions? Right. Well, you know, the, there are lots of really, really practical, nitty gritty topics or issues that have to be taken into account. So condition is usually one of the top aspects that we have to look at. Is a quilt in a good enough condition to hang on a wall? Um, as a museum, you know, our, our focus is on the future. Uh, it's on posterity. We want these quilts to be around for future generations. And that means safeguarding them the best way we, we can. So is a quilt in, in a good enough condition to hang on a wall? If not, if it's a, an important enough piece, can we put it on some other form of display, you know, on a slam board or even flat sometimes? If, it, if a piece tells the story successfully enough, then, you know, we will consider other ways of displaying them. So condition is a really key component to how we select pieces for an exhibition. And then there, you know, there are so many different aesthetic components as well. Will these quilts work together in a gallery? You know, a lot of times you look at um, digital images of a quilt and you can sort of see things in, the, in your mind's eye that they're going to work together. But when you get in the physical space, you know, they can clash or, you know, they just don't work. The colors don't work or, yeah, maybe the sizes, you know, you have to think about um, how if you have a really huge piece, is it going to overshadow a smaller piece? You know, so there are just lots of sort of design elements as well. And we are lucky that we have a really fantastic curator of exhibitions. He's a fantastic designer. So he's able to come up with designs for us and then virtually shift pieces around so that they do look like they're going to fit well together. But as I said, a lot of times it comes down to boots on the ground in the gallery <laughs> making some of those decisions. So yeah, so condition, design, and aesthetic aspects. Uh, but those are sort of the big ones. But obviously the most important thing is how do they contribute to the, the story that we're trying to tell? Is there a flow to that story? Does each piece really contribute in the most solid way possible? And then, yeah, that's how you select. And I'll just say, again, when it comes to sort of those practical issues, it's great to have a really helpful internal database. Because when you're in the thousands of quilts making those selections, it can be quite daunting if you don't have that way to sift through and sort of funnel things down. Um, select all the quilts that were made in the 30s, start with that, and then, you know, look at condition issues, look at, you know, whether or not they fit into the exhibition fully. I can't imagine what museums would, would have done before databases and the age of the I, internet. I can't either, honestly. And 
that is actually one thing that I'm, yeah, really enjoy doing is working with databases. I really, I like being able to present information in a sort of clear and helpful fashion. So databases are, yeah, critical to museum work. Absolutely. Maren, were there any, um, were there any heartbreaks with this? I imagine you said, you know, sometimes it just gets down to that last minute. You got to be in the physical space to see how the quilts are going to speak to one another. So I imagine, I can imagine a moment where you have all these options in front of you and you really are rooting for this one particular quilt, but at the end, (laughs) it just doesn't make it. Oh, that's a really good question. And I, I, don't think we had that moment with this exhibition. And I don't know if Yannickin would have a different answer there. Uh, I feel like all the pieces really contributed and anything that we might have eliminated, I'm trying to think of any examples in my head. They, they probably just didn't, uh, as I said, contribute to the full story as much as all the other ones. Obviously, there are so many quilts that can speak to the, the Depression era. But with Yannickin's focus, especially on sort of the New Deal government elements to the story, yeah, we couldn't just have a whole bunch of scrappy quilts that show the use of feedstock. We, ha- we had to illustrate her points in other ways. So and there was, I don't think there was a heartbreak. I think we ended up absolutely with the right, the right group of quilts. Wonderful. And you can see that group that you settled on at, in the back of Yannickin's book where she lists That's out right. the, I think the 15 quilts. Yeah. Do you have a favorite quilt in this particular show? Or is there one that you would encourage the viewer to the IQM just to spend an extra moment in front of? Yeah, that's really, of course, really, really hard. I like quilts that tell a story sort of illustratively, but even more so, I like quilts that tell a story more abstractly or subtly. And so... I really like the britchy quilt that's in there, the quilt that's made out of recycled denim jeans, essentially. I love the story that it tells of, of reuse and just valuing our material surroundings enough to reuse them in, in such a way. That's something that really resonates with me. So that might be my favorite. There are so many others, you know, that really tell the story more directly. So like the road to recovery quilt is, I mean, it, it just literally tells that story of here the depression has hit us really hard and we need to, you know, go down this literal path that she has drawn on the quilt towards this hopefully brighter future. Yeah, so the quilts that tell the story in a very clear visual way like that are great and I love them. But the ones that kind of speak to me more are the ones that would have been made by somebody just kind of making a quilt for their own use, for their own home, for their loved ones. And that aspect of reuse really, yeah, resonates with me. Which is what makes the Britchie quilt just so sweet. For anybody that has a book and wants to look along, you can look on page 215, 216 for the exhibition checklist. And we'll include an image right. of the Britchie quilt and Road to Recovery that Maren just mentioned in the show notes below this episode. Speaking of things that are non-quilty but quilt adjacent that are in the collection, in this show you included, is it one feed sack or a pair of feed sacks? Yeah, we had uh, two feed sacks from our collection that we included. One was for, yeah, the Shawnee's Best Flower. And again, if you have the book, it's on page 216. 
And then there was a printed one, a printed sack. And to just show the the two main styles of feed or sugar or flour sacks that were available to folks who wanted to reuse those fabrics. So yeah, the printed ones, of course, were sort of more highly valued and manufacturers, of course, catered to, you know, once they realized that this was a use for fabrics that they initially thought were, you know, simply to store grain in or feed in. Once they realized that these fabrics were valued enough to be reused into aprons or clothing or a quilts, they, yeah, they catered to the buyers and printed them with just really sweet, sweet prints. And the one we included is a great, just sort of standard kind of calico print, but you can totally see how it would have been used, you know, in an apron. Um, I say apron every time because I have a really great collection that my great grandmother made a set of aprons from feed sacks. So I always think of feed sacks in that way. But yeah, they were used for so many different purposes. So to be able to show those in the exhibition, we thought was was important. And I will just note that we will be opening an exhibition in January. I'm going to look and see if I can find the date for that exhibition, but it's going to be focused just on feed sacks. So we're going to have a great exhibition to complement this one where people can learn all about how feed sacks got started. There are many different uses. So I'll just put it plug in for that. <laughs> well, I think you just sealed the deal, Mar. Like I was really wanting to come see the New Deal show, of course. But now that you got that other show starting to in January, because yeah. I'm, I'm finding that... <laughs> This book is so beautiful. It has this little thumbnail of the flower sacks, right? And and it's like my fingers want to pinch to zoom so I can see that beautiful calico print. I'm like, I just can't. Oh, so right. Well, it is actually, it is pictured in the middle of the book. Oh, yeah? Right? Well, yeah, it is. And I'll try to find that really quickly. So you, you will be able to see that sweet print on, of course, I'm not finding it now. 107. Oh, you found it. Good job. Yeah, so it's still a little small there, but you can see that sweet little print, blues and pinks and you know, a nice little floral. It could have been used for anything, really. Yeah, a dress in a quilt. Yeah. Just enough to whet the appetite. I'm going to have to come that's, to Lincoln. <laughs> that's right. What was different in planning this show with Yannickin than some of the other exhibitions that you've worked on before? Well... You know, we we don't have the opportunity to produce a publication with every show, obviously. So that added a really great extra element to it, knowing that visitors to the gallery would be able to sort of taste, as you said, whet their appetite, but then be able to dig deeper with the book. And, you know, Yannick is such a great scholar, historian, but she writes in a really accessible way. So, you know, there's no stodginess or... <laughs> <laughs> you know, dense material. It's really well researched, but presented in a way that anybody can just dive right into and learn so much more about, especially, you know, these these government programs that encouraged women to reuse fabrics or employed them in workshops where they were creating quilted objects or, you know, mattresses or related objects. So that was a, a different element, knowing that we had such a rich, such rich material to work with, but that we knew that people could always go to the book if they wanted to discover more and to really, yeah, take a deep dive. 
that made it a little bit different. And certainly we had never approached this topic before because Yannickin really is, you know, she's the one who has spearheaded the research into these, especially the photographs from the WPA or from the, from the various arts programs that the government sponsored. So yeah, it, w- it was exciting to be able to present new research, a new topic, but then of course make it appealing to anybody. You know, I think I always feel like our exhibitions should sort of lure people in, you know, with just really beautiful, interesting objects. And then, yeah, once we've lured them in, then we can sort of present them with deeper material, let them learn more, let them see quilts in a new way, perhaps. That's kind of how I how I see our exhibitions. So what is it that you hope the viewer walks away with after seeing this show? I mean, I I hope they just have a new understanding of how quilts communicate and can help us understand a period in history in a richer or deeper way. You know, quilts are so accessible because they're they're something that so many of us have intimate memories of or relationships with, you know, so many of our visitors are quilt makers themselves. And so, you know, the quilts are, again, they're allure. They, they, they bring you in, they, they grab your attention, and they make you want to touch them, even though you're not allowed to in the museum settings. But that, I mean, they're warm and they're comfortable and they're accessible, but then they can be so much more as well. They are objects of communication. And so what I hope people take away is a realization or further realization that quilts are so much more than maybe they thought they were. That quilts could be used almost as propaganda, you know, as a way to communicate these ideas about what the Roosevelt administration was trying to accomplish with their federally sponsored programs. You know, the ideas that working together, we can move forward as a nation or, you know, by reusing and recycling, we can help the economy. Sort of these messages that we're used to seeing sort of more literally presented, can be presented in this sort of soft and alluring way that maybe is, you know, it's it's a way to send a message without hitting people over the head. So those are all my long ways of saying that I think what we are always trying to do at our museum is present people with beautiful and interesting objects that help them realize that quilts are really complex and interesting forms of material culture that tell stories you might never imagine they can tell. So I think we were successful with a new deal for quilts. But again, that's that is sort of my MO with every exhibition that I that I curate. And certainly I think all my colleagues would agree as well. I just wrote down quilts are a lure. I love that phrase. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think they are, right? I mean, I, that's what I hope, because obviously some of our visitors, you know, they, maybe their only connection with quilts is making them, you know, and that's great. That's such a great starting point. But we also love when we can share these deeper ideas and meanings about quilts. And so, yes, lure. <laughs> I hadn't really thought of that term before, but it keeps coming back and it seems appropriate. <laughs> Because it's, yeah, there are, there's so much more that people can learn about the world, about other cultures, about their own, you know, nation's history, just by looking at quilts. 
And it's an unexpected thing for some people to say, wow, you know, I had no idea that I could learn about World War One or about, you know, the history of African-American quilt making or about feed sack or about, yeah, how the New Deal relates to quilts. I think a lot of people, including myself, I, you know, are surprised at the many different topics that quilts can can address or be related to or help us understand. And I feel like in a lot of ways, the way you answered, what do you hope the viewer walks away with is how textiles make us more human and working with textiles make us more human. But would you like to opine a little further on that? Yeah. Sorry to sort of steal your thunder there with your no, last question, but no. I mean, it, it is absolutely near and dear to my heart that the idea that quilts and textiles, related textiles. Yeah, they're so intimate to the human experience. I think of examples from around the world where quilts have been such an integral part of people's, you know, whether it's during ceremonies, special moments in their lives, or whether it's during mourning, or whether it's as gift giving. You know, gift giving is such an important part of so many cultures around the world. And quilts have played a huge part in that, not just here in the U.S. where we like to give quilts, you know, for every birth or wedding that we come across. But, you know, around the world, uh, these objects have really been a, a, a deep part of people's lives. They're imbued with meaning. And for us at the International Quilt Museum to be able to share those meanings and that the depth and the richness of quilts. That's really gratifying. And it certainly is, I think, what motivates us with every exhibition or project or book that we complete. Well, Marin, this has been such a treat. Thank you so much for carving out a little bit of your day, a little bit of your time to share with us your end as a curator of New Deal for Quilts. I'm looking forward to coming to Lincoln, hopefully in the next few months so I can see that show and yeah. the Flower Sack show. Absolutely. Let me know when you're coming and I'll, I'll make a huge effort to get to Lincoln and, and see you. That'd be a treat. Thank you so much, Marn. Thank you so much, Zach. I hope you learned a thing or two with Marn. I know I did. Now remember, before next week, you may want to download that How to Make a Tiny Quilt tutorial and do a little hand sewing. So check out that link in the show notes to get your copy of the free download. And until then, I hope you're up to something good. I hope you're sewing something good. And I hope our paths cross again soon. Maybe on the nook. Who knows? <laughs>